0: When is a genocide not a genocide? That is a question that has been the subject of many heated discussions and debates and passionate feelings within our modern world, is it not? The Armenian Genocide, the Showa, the actions supposedly taking place in Western China. But the thing is, this debate, this argument, We have examples of human beings going on about it for over a thousand years. No, seriously, around 1,020 years ago, an event took place that has been described as a genocide, a very English genocide. It's called the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, and it was a moment when the King of England, supposedly in a fit of paranoia, ordered the systematic murder of a whole bunch of people. Supposedly, the entire Danish population of England, or maybe it was the Anglo-Danish population of England, We're, we're not too sure. But we were convinced it happened. I mean, it did happen, right? All the king's opponents said it happened. And like, apparently, churches in Britain used to proudly display the skins of murdered Danes in them, a remainder of that massacre for years afterwards, like some kind of grisly trophy. Only they turned out to be animal skins, not actual human skins. But it must have happened. I mean, if if you watch the Netflix TV show Vikings Valhalla, it refers to this massacre as the cause of all the invasions in that series. All right, all right, Netflix is not really known for its historical accuracy, but that doesn't mean we should listen to the claims that the St. Bryce's Day massacre didn't go down the way it was claimed. I mean, we have found mass graves of Vikings from the event, we think. And, And the king who ordered it, he admitted he gave the order to do it, so it's like an open and shut case. Am I right? No. No, not even close. An examination of the St. Bryce's Day massacre and the events leading up to it and what happened immediately after it are a brilliant case study in the dangers of projecting too much upon the past. It serves as an exemplar, especially for the likes of me, a warning that when you add a narrative to events, you can miss nuance. That adding a narrative to history, which is what I do, You can accidentally remove context and remove the truth. It appears then, when you look into this subject, that what actually happened was not only not a genocide, the people who claimed it, well, it reveals more about them than anything about the king in question. This is not to say there were not mass murders, there probably were. And this is not to defend the king who ordered it. Quite the opposite. Because by all accounts, not only did he order a whole bunch of systemic murders, in doing so, he accidentally destroyed his nation's last, best hope to be saved. So much so that even if he'd gotten away with it, and no one anywhere had ever heard about what he did, the action of St. Bryce's Day in the year 1002 damned his nation and doomed it in ways not generally recognised. And so this chapter of the story of London will examine the event and the implications that it had for London going forward. How it changed the story of London and began a sequence of events that was to bring the city face to face with some of the most ferocious armies yet seen in English history. Hi, my name is Saul and I'd like to welcome you to chapter 26 of the story of London, a most just extermination? So, let's provide some context to this story. It's the dawn of the second millennium, round about the year 1000 of the Common Era. England is at war. The seemingly weak and ineffectual king, Ethelred had, however, recently changed the whole dynamic of the ongoing conflict facing his nation. He had suddenly placed England on an offensive stance. This was a big thing. For almost 15 years, he'd seemed content to remain at court, while Viking raids and attacks had undermined faith in his ability to rule, faith in his nation, and had left the country reeling from a series of military setbacks. But then he flipped the script, starting diplomatically at first, but then moving on to military matters. He'd used diplomacy to get the region to the south of England, Normandy, to stop supporting the Vikings by giving them shelter in Norman ports. This done, he then set Norway and Denmark at war with one another by getting a Viking called Olaf Tryggvason to take the throne of Norway, thereby forcing the King of Denmark, and the guy who was King of Norway till this moment, one Svien Forkbeard, to hurry home and try to reclaim the title. The result of all this diplomatic work was to reduce the pressure on his country. No sooner was that done than the king had demanded a more aggressive policy from his nobles, militarily. And while his desire was thwarted at almost every turn by incompetence and cowardice, he had maintained this aggressive position, leading him to being arguably the first ever English king in this island's history to use naval forces to impose his will upon other nations. I say arguably the first. His, his grandfather, Ethelstan had used a fleet of ships to once invade the far region of Inverness in Scotland, but Æthelred had gone beyond that. He had sailed and marched an army into the Irish Sea and had put to torch islands and coastal regions who were supplying and helping the Vikings who were still raiding England. But he did not stop there. He had then invaded Normandy, ...because they had broken the treaty that he had got them to sign... ...and it forced the new duke of the region to reinstate the treaty his father had made. And finally, to top it all off, he sealed the deal... ...by gaining himself a young trophy wife... ...the young duke's sister, Emma. This was a sudden change... ...and utterly upends the narrative we have of King Ethelred the Unready. This king is bold, incisive, strong and as undoing much of the damage of his earlier reign it seems. Not shabby. And and London in all of this? I would imagine they were delighted. They were the seeming headquarters of the English fleet, their sailors involved in every naval operation, its citizens still shining with pride that only a few years previously they had faced down and beaten off quite smartly a most ferocious Viking army, the city was also blessed with having a new and powerful Bishop of London around, who styled himself the wolf, and who preached to them probably that these were the end times and their struggles were their chance to defy the Antichrist and fight for God himself. This new aggressive stance then King Ethelred had taken would have no doubt been a delightful surprise, I would imagine. Or maybe it had not been quite a surprise. Maybe there was a reason for this new offensive positioning that made a whole load of sense. Maybe there was a reason for everything that would put the subsequent events up to and including the St. Bryce's Day massacre into context. In the year 995, so just five years earlier, the king had paid a Dane geld to King Sven Forkbeard of Denmark, so he would stop attacking and burning England, and piss off back to Denmark. But as we covered back in chapter 24, the king had also paid a separate Dane guild to Olaf Tryggvason. Money partly to get that Norwegian to go on and claim the throne of Norway. But the money also did something else. It bought mercenaries. To be precise, Norwegian mercenaries soldiers and sailors and their leaders, Vikings basically, to now fight for England, and one of whom, a man called Palleg, had been so important that they had been given English lands to actually hold and rule on behalf of the king, but we'll come back to Palleg in a bit. Just keep in mind that as of 995, the English state now had a bunch of Vikings working for them. Two years later then, when King Ethelred launches his more aggressive stance on things, What are we seeing on the ground? We're seeing suddenly steel appear in the English forces, a new bravery begin to be seen in the English leaders, which begs the question, did this bravery come from the presence of those mercenaries? Understand, the king's great-grandfather, I think it was, the man known to us as Alfred the Great, he'd revolutionised England as a nation. Previous to Alfred the Great, The ancient kingdom of Wessex, along with the other kingdoms of the Heptarchy, so Mercia and Northumbria and East Anglia and so forth, they were all nations whose wars were mostly fought by small bands of warrior elite. Men basically raised to fight for a living. And this is why they ended up becoming nobility. They were the warrior elite whose job it was to go out and fight, and were therefore honoured by the kings of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And while such a system had many flaws, it worked well enough for hundreds of years, right up until the coming of the Vikings. And what Alfred had seen was the need then for much larger bodies of men to take to the field. And so he had created the Fjord, the massive citizen army of England, where the fighting was now being carried out by the farmers and peasants of England on the whole. And under Alfred, the system of the fjord, combined with the building of fortifications everywhere, the the mighty Burgle system, had turned his island into a veritable fortress. Wessex and then England had been able to take wave after wave of attack and beaten off the attackers, and slowly and systematically expand its borders all the way north to Scotland. But to all things come both good and bad elements. And Alfred's system, while it made the country a fortress, also included a fundamental weakness within it. The nobles of England, you see, were no longer raised to fight. They were no longer a bunch of warriors passing down the obligation to take to the field to their children. They were now a bunch of landowners passing down their estates to their children. Noble children were no longer being raised from the age of eight in the fine art of fighting in battles as they had been. So while Alfred had militarised England, he had also removed its warrior tradition. And this is why a time of a few generations later, you know, when his I think it is his great-grandson, Ethelred comes around, not only is he less of a war leader than Alfred, but around him is an entire generation of nobility whose defining characteristic is such that when you do find one willing to take to the field of battle, they stand out as the exception, and not the rule. This is what those Norwegian mercenaries, I believe, were here to help cope with. Or at least, this is how it appears King Ethelred saw the situation. Of course, there wasn't many of these mercenaries, certainly not enough to do all the fighting for him, so he'd be trying to use these men to galvanise England to take war to the Vikings, but then would be depending upon his native leaders to actually do the fighting. And do I have any, like, meat to this accusation? Well, I think I do. As I described last chapter, the king attempted a joint land-sea operation around Kent, and it failed due to what appears to be the incompetence of its leaders. But its ambition suggests a faith that it could have worked, this for me, is where I get the idea that the mercenaries offered enough to get the king to begin ordering his more aggressive positioning and stance. And remember, as we covered last chapter, that aggressiveness did not end in the operation in Kent. Two years later, a massive joint land-sea operation saw the English ravage the Irish Sea and Normandy, something never seen before in the history of England. Again, I have to ask, is that what those warriors brought to the table? Did they actually lead those raids? Or did they provide skilled competence for the rather amateur forces of England? In our modern world, we know that in the many bushfire and low-intensity conflicts we've seen over the last 60, 70 years or so, indigenous forces who by themselves were merely a marginal military asset Once you embed professional soldiery in them from, say, I don't know, the United States of America, they become much more effective in military operations. Is that what happened a thousand years ago in England? Is that what those Norwegian mercenaries brought to the table? For me, it seems obvious to say yes. However, please note, there is no evidence to support this belief of mine. It's just a conclusion based on the events as I see them. A narrative to fit around the scattered remnants of the records of those ancient times. So, that's my theory. But picture it then. In 995, the English get hold of a bunch of Norwegian mercenaries. Vikings. And over the next few years, these Norwegians begin offering England what it lacked. A warrior tradition. The king gets excited. He begins trying to use them to take the war to the Vikings. There are a few false starts and missteps. But eventually, it all comes together around about the year 1000. And we have the utterly jaw-dropping moment of a king of England launching a sea-based raid upon his neighbours. These Norwegian mercenaries seem to be having the desired effect. They were probably garrisoned in certain places and operating as small units and maybe brought skills and knowledge the English desperately needed at this point. So that's my theory. Now, this is a podcast about London, right? So I've got to come back to our subject matter and now ask the question, were these Norwegian mercenaries ever based in or had anything to do with London? Well, we do not know. There is nothing written down, and while there are references to Scandinavians or Anglo-Danes being based in London and operating as warriors in London within only a few years from now, there is nothing specifically saying there were any in the period from 995 to 1002. And you could argue that it probably would have been very unlikely. I mean, after all... When these Norwegians had arrived in England, it had been as part of a vast Danish army that specifically attacked London, and then had their asses handed to them. On paper, that suggests either the Londoners would have been, I don't know, resentful for them turning up, or that the Norwegians could have been the guys who lost friends at the hands of those self-same Londoners. So if you ask me my honest take based on that, I'd say the Norwegians would never have gone anywhere close to London. That such a move would have gone down as well as stationing them in Kent a few months after they burnt the place, you know? However, (laughs) there is a whole load of circumstantial evidence which suggests that London was the centre of the English naval operations during the years leading up to now. I've been saying it over the last half dozen episodes or so. And it was based on things like the way the fleets always gathered at London, the fact one bishop of London, or former bishop of London, had seemingly started the first attempts to organise a national fleet system, the fact that at least one other separate London bishop had led English ships into battle, that the location of London and the idea of an aggressive sea-based defence policy keeps coming up again and again. If there was somewhere who wanted expertise in how you correctly do what had been tried before but never succeeded, you know, like the idea of using ships to interdict the enemies of the state, then London would be that place. More than anywhere else at this time, London appears to be just the kind of place We're having professional sea-based raiders offering expertise and knowledge in how, you know, suddenly appear on the Irish Sea like the wrath of God himself to inflict righteous vengeance upon the Vikings living there for daring to raid Kent. Yeah, London's the place where they'd want them. London would not have needed advice on how you fight off Vikings. They knew how to do that. They may have accepted a handful of men, or maybe more, who knew how to operate ship-based actions against their enemies. So we have to keep in mind that there may be Norwegian mercenaries based in London, either up to or around the year 1000 and 1001. It's a possibility, is all. Now, with all of that being established, let's get on to the events of the massacre then. In the year 1002, this new national spirit of resistance found amidst the English was soon put to the test again. The Londoners heard news that a large fleet of Viking ships had hit the south coast. Now we can say with certainty that the temperament of England had changed. As we hear in this campaign, unlike some previous ones, the English were clearly in the mood to fight back. We know when a Viking raiding force, who at least one historian I've read has suggested had previously been based in Normandy, but had been expelled by Duke Richard II after he agreed to enforce his father's policy on the Vikings, when that force fell upon Hampshire, they were met by fierce resistance. A battle took place. 81 Englishmen were slain, including some of the king's own officials, or Reeves, but they gave as good as they got the sources say that losses quote on the danish side were heavier but they had possession of the place of slaughter unquote even if we lost this was more like it this was like the example london had set a few years previously this was tenacity the beginnings of that quintessential of English mentalities, hold fast. Then this Viking force moved into Devon, and then something happened. In fact, you could argue that it actually happened a couple of years earlier. You see, Olas Tryggvason was dead. He died in battle, apparently. In September of the year 1000, the King of Norway had been sailing home when his battle fleet had been ambushed by a two-pronged attack, masterminded by Svein Forkbeard, and in the subsequent massive naval battle of Svolde, Olaf had died. According to Danish sources, when his giant flagship was being overrun, Olaf Tryggvason had thrown himself into the sea, preferring to drown rather than allow his enemies capture him alive. This being said, according to much later Icelandic sources, Olaf had been helped out of the water and to the shore by a couple of angels, and after the battle, he retired to live happily ever after as a monk. I'll let the listener decide which version they want to follow. But the thing was, that mercenary deal that was probably conducted between Olaf and Ethelred had two parts in it. The English king's part and the Norwegian king's part. And the king of Norway was now dead. Why would any of the mercenaries keep to the deal? And perhaps this is why. Just as the Vikings reached Devon, a terrible betrayal takes place. The most high profile of the mercenary Norwegians who'd been left there to help defend England by Olaf Tryggvason, a man we mentioned earlier, called Pallig, he swapped sides. Pallig was important, and so was this betrayal. So important that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, in doing this act, that, quote, he had shaken off his allegiance to King Æthelred against all the vows of truth and fidelity which he had given him, as well as the presents which the king had bestowed on him in houses and gold and silver. Unquote. So there's this pallid guy. Supposedly he was a Christian, as mentioned in a previous chapter, and was perhaps even married to King Sven Forkbeard's Christian sister, Gunhild who is living with him here in England. And he'd not just been given gold and silver, so treasures from the king himself, but houses, which suggest land grants. And he had men working for him. As the Viking force fell upon Devon, the Chronicle says that Pallig, quote, came to meet them with the ships, which he was able to collect, unquote. Now, if Pallig is gathering ships, that suggests he's taking with him fellow Norwegian mercenaries who could well have arrived on ships when they sailed over in 995 and had kept them around since then but notice the exact wording used he was able to gather the ships he was able to collect which suggests there were some he was unable to collect maybe they missed the memo or maybe it wasn't all the mercenaries who were contracted with him only some of his men went over it remains a possibility but understand what paleg's betrayal meant to the southwest of england the vikings were now reinforced and then they went on a tear quote and they burned Tayton, and also many other goodly towns that we cannot name unquote It then appears that the locals of the North Devon region arranged for a Dane guild to be given so the Vikings would move on, as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, and then peace was there concluded with them, unquote, and this done, Palig and his new friends moved south, and, quote, they proceeded thence to Exmouth so that they marched at once till they came to Pinhoe. unquote. There these Vikings, quote, did all that was their want, destroyed and burnt, Then was collected a vast force of the people of Devon and of the people of Somerset, and they then came together. And so soon as they joined the battle, then the people gave way, and they made a great slaughter, and then they rode over the land, and their last incursion was even worse than the one before." So yeah, a huge English force rose up to meet them, and, well, they collapsed and were butchered. Sounds like an utter disaster. And with it, all English resistance in the West Country seemed to melt away. Paleg would have known the defenders, known the disposition of forces locally, after all. This was a proper betrayal here. But one ray of hope found in this utter disaster was the fact that this force, quote, came to Exmouth, and there went up to the town, and there continued fighting stoutly, but they were very strenuously resisted, unquote, and we think they actually fell upon the town of Exeter, and it, like London had a few years previously, had shown the power of the burgle system, and it had resisted and beaten them off. But that was about the only ray of hope to be found in an otherwise altogether grim situation. According to all accounts, this Viking force raided and burned and finally sailed to the Isle of Wight, where finally, for the princely sum of £24,000 or so, a Dane guild was organised to get them to leave. Remember, the Dane guilds are supposed to buy time for the state, but with Pallig's defection and the collapse of the only newly established morale of the English, it seems there were no new ideas. I mean, One version of the chronicle says the following Nothing withstood them, nor any fleet by sea durst meet them, nor land force either. Which seems to suggest that maybe sea forces were available. And indeed, we know sea forces should have been available in England in the year 1002, as only a year or so previously. These ships had been raiding and pillaging the Normandy coast, but if the mercenaries under Pallig had betrayed England like this, could other mercenary forces be trusted? If the fleet had relied upon Norwegians to supplement them and advise them, one could imagine an uncertainty, a fear, a paranoia. The year 1002 had seen the brand new confidence of England, one that had seemingly emerged with the arrival of the Norwegian mercenaries seven years earlier, disappear. Maybe Paleg's betrayal caused this confidence to dissolve like a gossamer ghost. And in this light, what the king then decided to do suddenly makes terrible sense. According to the traditional way the story is told, King Æthelred was informed of a plan to assassinate him, orchestrated by a Danish or Anglo-Danish population of England, and so he ordered the systematic execution of all the Danes of England. There now follows lurid accounts of widespread massacres and slaughters, but these all stem from centuries later, but in them we find descriptions of the systemic murder of men, women, and children, with lurid details of children's heads being smashed against doorposts and more. And a couple of years later, Ethelred himself said the following in the royal proclamation he issued upon paying for the rebuilding of a damaged church in Oxford. And the king says the reason why the church had been damaged was because... A decree was sent out by me with the council of my leading men and magnates to the effect that all the Danes who had sprung up in this island sprouting like cockle amongst the wheat were to be destroyed by a most just extermination and thus this decree was to be put into effect even as far as death Those Danes who dwelt in the aforementioned town, striving to escape death, entered this sanctuary of Christ, having broken by force the doors and bolts, and resolved to make refuge and defence for themselves therein against the people of the town and the suburbs. But when all the people in pursuit strove, forced by necessity to drive them out, and could not, they set fire to the planks and burnt. As it seems, this church, with its ornaments and its books, afterwards, with God's aid, it was renewed by me. Unquote. So there it is. In Oxford, there was an attack upon the Danes, or Norwegians, and they had fled defying sanctuary in a local church and defended themselves from a horde of attackers who eventually burned them to death. So we know there was a massacre in Oxford. But that's actually it for contemporary records. Um, we have some archaeological evidence which may add to this, but we'll come back to that. There are many problems with the idea that Aethelred ordered a genocide against the Danes in England, you see. Firstly, it is doubtful he could have had the order carried out in the regions where there is a large Anglo-Danish population. So we're talking here... The region that's mostly known as the Dane Law, which means the whole of northern Mercia, the whole of East Anglia, and the whole of Northumbria. So these areas would not have seen any massacres. So if there was a series of attacks, it would have been in the south, exclusively. Now, in terms of archaeology, this is where the story gets way more interesting. Basically, there existed absolutely no archaeological evidence to suggest a great big massacre took place anywhere. There were no mass graves filled with women and children that have been discovered. No, nothing. For nearly a thousand years this was the case. And then, in 2008 things changed. In an excavation of the grounds of St. John's College Oxford, in a Neolithic ditch found below the ground, people discovered the bodies 37 adult males, mostly aged between 16 and 35, and they dated to the Viking era. Evidence of charring to the bones suggested they might be victims of the St. Bryce's Day massacre. Indeed, going back to those words written in the Royal Charter of 1004, two years later, these 37 men appear to have been the victims of the destruction of the Church of St. Wide in Oxford. However, a study of an isotopic analysis of the bones carried out in 2012 not only confirmed that the victims were Scandinavian origin, it placed the date of their deaths to some decades before the St. Bryce's Day massacre, suggesting they were probably Viking raiders and they had been massacred and murdered and executed but probably in an earlier massacre than the one mentioned and ordered by Ethelred. But then in 2009, near the town of Weymouth and Dorset, another mass grave was found, dating to the 11th century. 50 young men, aged between 18 and 25 years of age, and all of whom originated in Scandinavia or the Baltic region, had been decapitated and their heads all piled separately from the bodies. Were these men the victims of the St. Bryce's Day massacre? We do not know, but they could well have been. And that's it. Alas, that is the only physical evidence we have found that a massacre took place. So what do we have? Well, we have several strands that tell us something bad happened. We have Ethelred's confession. Well, he was more gloating than confessing that he ordered a most just extermination back in 1002. And we have the site of a mass execution in Dorset of 50 men. And we have contemporary shock and revulsion at whatever he ordered. We have lurid tales of what came later, but very little evidence to back it up. The St. Bryce's Day massacre represents one of the most dramatic events of Ethelred's entire reign, but exactly who it was meant to punish, how many were punished, where they were punished, who carried out the punishments, and what the contemporary reactions to it were, all of these remain unclear. And it's for these reasons that many modern historians are not sure if it was a flat-out genocide at all. Some, like Simon Keyes, believe that the massacre was caused by the defection of Pallig. That defection, that betrayal, which had filled contemporaries with such disgust, was the trigger for all that followed. For him and others, Æthelred's order was a bit more precise than the order of genocide. Not the murder of all the Danes in England, forget hyperbole, With the purging of the diaspora who'd arrived when Ethelred had made his deal with Oleg Tryggvason, the mercenaries who had fought for England, mercenaries who possibly had manned the ships of England, they were now suspect. Did Ethelred's order begin as a move against the leaders of these mercenary communities? Did it extend to all the mercenaries? Did it spiral out of control, as later sources claim to include civilians and even women married to Scandinavians, or even worse, their children? It's easy, when looking at the past, when looking at this era especially, to see the string of battles and deaths in battles and the endless tales of raiding and pillaging, to assume that violence was something that no one was surprised by. But the response to the St. Bryce's Day massacre begs us to reconsider this for a moment. There remains no evidence that what followed was a systematic genocide, despite later claims. But the condemnation does seem to be greater than the few sites we have evidence for would suggest. So what happened? I do not think we will ever know for sure. Certainly, the ferocity of the condemnation and the response towards Ethered suggests that whatever the scale of the act, it provoked a sense of moral outrage a universal condemnation of what Ethelred had done. Now whether this was indicative of thousands of people being killed, or if it was just indicative of warriors being ambushed in a way that other warriors and nobles would find especially shocking, we can't tell. For me at least, the strongest evidence that something happened that November day in 1002 is simply the fact that before St. Brice's Day, we saw a new aggression and operational skill being displayed by the English. That with Scandinavian mercenaries in the kingdom, we suddenly have English forces operating in the Irish Sea and attacking Normandy. And England being more than just a punching bag for every Viking with a ship and a couple of mates. And that after the betrayal of Pallig and the subsequent St. Bryce's Day Massacre, that just stopped dead. So something happened, even if we don't know the full details. But the final strand that something took place was the international ramifications, the politics of how events were seen. Some decades ago in our time, the nation of Iraq invaded its neighbour, Kuwait. In the immediate afterwards of this invasion, as the world wondered what to do, a young woman walked into the United States Congress to testify about the situation in Iraq. What followed is known as the Naira Testimony, where a young woman gave lurid tales of Iraqi soldiers throwing babies out of incubators and literally murdering patients in their hospital beds. After the first Gulf War ended, however, it was discovered that much of this testimony was simply untrue. It was made up. It was an example of what we call today atrocity propaganda. And while we consider atrocity propaganda to be a modern thing, we know that even back now, a thousand years ago, around this time, Pope Urban II would utilise this very self-same technique to begin the crusades with made-up and lurid stories of non-existent massacres of Christians in the Holy Land. So in truth... What actually happened on that day in late 1002 wasn't as important as the way it could be seen and used. The politics of the event mattered more. Now, the foreign condemnation of Æthelred was fairly universal as far as we can tell. The Normans claimed they took in an influx of traumatised survivors and that this was the excuse given by Duke Richard II of Normandy to rip up his treaty with Æthelred brother-in-law or not, the Vikings would find shelter in Norman ports again, which lends weight to there being a revulsion towards what Ethelred did. Or it also lends weight to Richard II, the Duke of Normandy, going, wait, did the guy who just invaded me and forced me to sign a treaty just kill off the bunch of mercenaries who made that raid possible? Really? That means he won't be able to return and kick my ass again, right? Oh, in which case then, hey Ethelred, your treaty sucks. And it does seem as if Ethelred had given up. After that frenzy of activity at the turn of the millennia, Ethelred does indeed now appear to have left all military affairs to his Ældermen and the local officials from 1003 onwards. And that was bad because things went south real fast after this massacre. Because... Svien Forkbeard returned. In the end, while we do not know for certain what took place on the 12th of November of the year 1002, all we do need to know is that something took place, and it became a shorthand for not just describing Ethelred as a poor king, but to feed the many enemies with a reason to attack. Above all, It reminds us that everything I describe in this era, well, there's always room for doubt, discovery and debate. But I'm going to end this here. That's it for this week's chapter. Thank you for listening. Please, if you can, and you haven't yet, if you enjoyed this episode, if you could leave a five-star review to impress the algorithms that regulate if a podcast gets mentioned to others in their feeds, it can really help. There is a free rough script for this episode for those inclined to read along as they listen along, although I'm usually about five, six days behind after the podcast comes out getting that up. I will try to get closer with the posting of the two. And I'll be back next week for chapter 27 of The Story of London as we enter the dark times. Cheers. Thank you.